Welcome to the Emancipate Your Mind podcast. I'm your host, Certified Religious Transition and Trauma Recovery Coach, Terry Hales. I help people step out of the shadows of religious fear and shame and embrace their authentic selves with love and empathy. If you're ready to throw off the shackles of learned binary thinking and explore a more nuanced approach to life, this is your playground. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Emancipate Your Mind podcast. I'm really thrilled to introduce you to licensed therapist, Catherine Queering. And I'm going to let her tell you a little bit about herself before we get into our topic today, which is about religious attachment wounds. So I'm really excited about this. So Catherine, tell us all about you. Hi, uh, thanks so much for having me, Terry. I'm so excited to be here. Um, I am a licensed trauma therapist and self-trust coach, and I help specifically ex-evangelicals learn how to trust their desires and reconnect to their inner wisdom. Um, but I also help with anything that takes people out of themselves and their own self-trust and help them come back to themselves. So that might be narcissistic abuse, sexual abuse, um, emotionally mature parents. There's so many types mm-hmm. of woundings that are pretty similar there um, that I work to help people be able to heal and come home to themselves again. Yeah. Yeah. I love that because this kind of, this podcast sort of covers a lot of those different topics too. They all kind of intertwine. I find the mm-hmm. high demand religion kind of intertwines with like narcissistic family systems sometimes or narcissistic right. abuse within the religious system. Right. Um, and then emotional immaturity, I think is something that all of us kind of experience in high demand religion because we're separated out from our emotions and from our inner wisdom so often that we reach adulthood and we don't know how to feel and we don't know how to manage our emotions and we don't know how to care for ourselves or listen to ourselves. So I know that a lot of listeners here are going to want to like spend more time in your presence. Where can they find more of you before we even get started? Yeah, the main place to find me is my website, cqcounseling.com. And then you can sign up for my mailing list there. We'll also link to my attachment style quiz to God um, that you can explore what we're talking about today some more. And that'll get you on my mailing list as well. That's where I spend most of my time is the mailing list and the blog. Oh, I love that. So I love that you have a blog and that people can access some of those resources and your thoughts there. I find blogs incredibly helpful as I've gone through my own religious healing space. There weren't a lot of books when I started this process five or six years ago. And so blogs were kind of blogs and social media posts were kind of the places where I was introduced to new ideas. So I'm glad that you have that resource. So go check her out. Now, she and I were having a conversation a couple of weeks ago. We were talking about different topics that we could possibly bring to the podcast. And I've been wanting to do a podcast on attachment wounds in particular. I was thinking more with family members, but Catherine was bringing up how we often have attachment wounds with God when we've come from high demand religious systems. And so I'm going to let her talk about her thoughts there. And we're just going to kind of have a conversation about this and, you know, get curious about this topic. So what made the idea of religious attachment wounds with God come up for you? Well, it was my first break into 
the the high demand, high control worldview that I had been in was when I went to grad school for clinical psychology and I started therapy the for the first time myself and started understanding that I'd been in a codependent relationship with my mom. Mm. And then that expanded to be like, oh, well, that's how I was taught relationships should be to be healthy because that's also the pressure and the teaching I experienced around how I was supposed to relate to God. And that Mm -hmm. is how I related to God because I was people pleaser and wanted to be connected. And so that's what I did. And understanding the attachment wounds around that has been really helpful for my own healing. And that's one of the main um, kind of frameworks I use in therapy as well is understanding our attachment to others and to ourselves. And so seeing our attachment a religious trauma through attachment wounds was really helpful for me. And I think also takes a little bit of the bite out of it when you're not ready to call it trauma, right? It's just, I felt pressure to be attached this way and I want to move towards healthier attachment. Yeah. Well, and I think many of us don't, we don't resonate with that word trauma. Like I really like the idea of, um, from the religious trauma Institute they're they're actually starting to use the word like adverse religious experiences. I like that too. And I like that because it allows for the whole spectrum from, Oh, like that impacted me negatively a little bit all the way to like, that was really traumatic and changed the whole course of my life. Um, and my whole relationship with myself and with God and with my family and others. Let's talk really quickly about what codependency is, because I think there are some people that are listening to the podcast for the first time after the Beyond the Wound Summit who maybe haven't listened to some of the podcasts on codependency. So what is the idea of codependency or enmeshment? So the idea is that you are supposed to be almost like one person. You are so close to the other person. There is no space in between you. Um, Mm. And that can breed a lot of anxiety as well, because any sort of space or anyone showing their individuality can be seen as a threat to the relationship or brings tension to the relationship because you have to basically agree all the time. And there's a lot of pressure to be close and to reinforce the relationship and reinforce your care for each other and your love for each other and your gratitude and that kind of thing that Mm -hmm. feels like it has to be pretty constant to maintain that feeling. Yeah. When I'm already thinking of scriptures that come to mind that have a feeling like you heard too, where, you know, Jesus is modeled as who we're supposed to be like. And he says, you know, I and the father are one and he invites you to be one with him. And I remember reading John 15, like it was one of my favorite chapters. It was about the branch and the vine and being connected, right? Like, mm -hmm. And then also the, you have to prune the branches. There were definitely parts of me that was like, okay, well then I have to cut them off because it's not acceptable in this codependent relationship. Yeah. I have to leave this relationship to have those parts of myself. And I can't do that. That would be like death to me because this relationship becomes your whole life. Yeah. So this idea of being like a part of the organism, almost like you might be a leaf, but you're still a part of the plant. is yeah like some of those things and then the thing that comes from that is this Mm -hmm. idea like we're even taught that marriage is supposed to be that way like leaving leaving father and mother and becoming one flesh with your spouse like there's a lot of codependent ideas that I think are normalized throughout the bible yes and then if you extrapolate that to in that particular setting and that particular those verses about then you have to 
cut off parts of yourself, right. And throw them into the fire. Then it's like, God wants you to do violence to yourself and to valuable parts of yourself in order to be acceptable, in order to be close to him. That, um, was, that was a real pain point for me. Yeah. Yeah. The idea of if something, you know, if, if something's offending you or keeping you from God to like cut it off and, and dispose of it. I know there were definitely parts of myself that I suppressed. I don't think I ever got to a place where I fully disposed of them. They were down there and they were, they got louder and louder the older I got, but, you know, pushing them down so that I would fit the mold of who I was supposed to be to have a close relationship with God. Yeah. It it does become very painful because I think the underlying, the underlying message underneath that is I'm not acceptable as I am. And that I need to become someone else to be lovable. Right. That I need to edit myself to be lovable. And especially when that's coming from an all-knowing God. Mm -hmm. There's no place to hide. Yeah. Like who knows your thoughts. Exactly. I remember having to hide my thoughts and my feelings from myself so that God wouldn't be aware of them either. (laughs) Absolutely. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. You would have, well, I used to edit my journals. Oh gosh, journaling was like so painful. Yeah. I used to edit my journals, not just for like people who might read them after me, like my kids and stuff like that. But in Mormonism, we were taught that the journals that we keep are literally a record for yeah, like it's it's a record that that persists. And so I was like, I'm not writing down anything that will like self-condemn me. I'm not doing that. Mm -hmm. Well, I remember reading books about people who were journaling and reading autobiographies of missionary women, you know, like Elizabeth Elliot and Amy Carmichael and being like, well, people might, you know, that the narcissistic grandiosity that you're bre- like you're breeded with, right. Of like, well, people might read my journal someday, right. I need to be like this witness for Christ. And even censoring that part of my life, mm-hmm. that it has to be just this glowing godly depiction of everything. Um, there's no space for me or for humanity here. Yeah. Or for grief or for right. any of the difficult emotions. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Any difficult emotion that might paint us as human. Like there was a lot of toxic positivity happening in my journal of, you know, gratitude and like prayers and wishes for myself. And like, I would almost write the opposite sometimes of what I actually felt to like, almost try to convince myself to feel that way. Right. Yeah, there was a lot of rationalization and minimization in my journal too. Yeah. So if we have this kind of relationship with God where we feel like we need to edit ourselves and we feel like he can, you know, he's aware of, you know, he's omnipresent, omnipotent, omni, you know, like he's everywhere, omniscient. How does this affect our attachment with a God or a father figure? Well, I'm just going to add this part in and we can talk more about this later or you'll hear me talk about this in other places. But I think there's also the factor of the way God is presented in in our conception of God in these spaces that makes him out to be like an authoritarian, capricious, narcissistic kind of benevolent slaveholder mm-hmm. kind of conception, right? And so then attaching to a God that we have that conception of um, adds a whole nother layer. So there's this, like, I have to always be grateful to God. 
right? Mm-hmm. And I have to always be positive and always be thankful for what he's giving me. And anything that's negative in myself is from myself and from my sin and from my tendency to be led astray, right? So like our whole core value and worth is only from this God, right? And we have to stay super close to him to prove our allegiance at the same time that we're having to call ourselves worthless, right? In order to maintain that relationship. So that's a whole nother, like really painful layer of that. That doesn't have to be a part of the codependent relationship. There may be a lot of um, more positivity and warmth and I'm so grateful to be next to like a merciful God and I feel his grace and all of this. Like, I think there is space for that, but that if you take the whole picture of God, then there's both. Just like we suppress parts of ourselves, we have to suppress some of these conceptions of God that we're told about in order to maintain that closeness, right? Or we would just implode. Yeah. Well, and I feel like it it also depends on um, like which parts of those are pulled out in, you know, Sunday school lessons and Mm -hmm. emphasized at church, because sometimes I feel like in certain congregations, there are parts, you know, of God that are glossed over and other parts are more emphasized. And I also think that we look to our families of origin to make sense of a father God. And so if we have, you know, a really authoritarian, narcissistic father or mother, because I think both can kind of, I I based my understanding of God on my mom, actually. So my father is really, really hands off because A, I'm adopted and B, he's like, his culture is just like, you just don't, you don't Uh like. Right. You're more of a breadwinner or provider, but you're not really engaged with the kids and family life. He's Mexican. So like, you don't say, I love you. Like his parents never told him that they loved him. So like he's, those words never came out of their mouth. So he's like super like hands off. Right. Um, so my mom was like the parent figure in my, in my family, if that makes sense. My dad was more of like a breadwinner and kind of like, I'll fix your car and I'll buy you fruit. Right. Like right. it was really yeah. weird. I'll buy you exotic fruit. And that's my, I love you. Um, so my understanding of God came from like, those two parental figures, like maybe God's more like my dad and he's like super hands off and I can't, I don't know if he's ever going to connect with me or he's more like my mom. And, and there's a lot of control and a lot of like trying to like make everything work the way it's supposed to. So Mm -hmm. I think our understanding of God really comes from what's emphasized at church, but also what's modeled for us at home. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Putting those two together. So I, Mm -hmm. I also had the like enmeshment and codependency with my mom, right? So that's what I took from church as well as the conceptions of God, right? And other people might have a very different experience. Yeah. Um, And for me, I was thinking as we're talking about all these conceptions that were given of God, I think my idea was that if you're you're really close and you're enmeshed and you're codependent and you're always grateful, then you won't see that negative side of God, Mm -hmm. right? You will only see the loving, positive, merciful, grateful. Mm -hmm. But as soon as you sin you know, we're taught if someone moved, God can't move because he's always constant for you, right? You did it and you yeah. have to fix it, right? Use your willpower to get back. It, and so like any distance was because I had a problem, right? So any lack of um, like a feeling emotionally close to God, I had to examine myself and say, oh, I must be sinning. What do I need to do to fix that? Right? Just like I would do in a relationship with my mom, right? It's like, okay, I feel like we're emotionally distant. What did I do? How can I fix it? Yeah. Yeah. I hadn't even thought about that. The fact that, you know, 
it's it's not a, a mutual relationship. It is I'm the one that has to move and to input in order to get the output that I want. It's it's right. an inanimate an inanimate object almost right. that we're constantly monitoring the inputs that we're putting in in order to get whatever promised outputs that we're told will happen based on right. our behavior. Yeah, right. and that's not how it's, relationships work. Right. And I think that's where the anxiety and the fear of rejection comes in, right? Because if I'm not super close and I don't feel their warmth and kindness, whether that be God or in my case, my mother, um, I'm going to be rejected. There's going to be tension or I don't know how they feel about me or, you know, all these attachment fears. Yeah. Well, and I feel like this is a really good place to talk about like the different attachment styles because we've just mentioned, I think, almost all of them. And so let's talk about the different attachment patterns that we might have in our life. And and then we'll go from there, like see where the conversation takes us after that. Yeah, great. So the first one that we mentioned is obviously either codependent or anxious. Um, They're mostly interchangeable. Um, And it's this pattern of I have to be close or I'm really worried about the relationship, right? Um, And the relationship comes over autonomy. So we both need connection and we need individuation or a sense of ourselves and being ourselves and in codependency or anxious attachment, the relationship wins. If one of them has to give the relationship wins, our sense of self gets buried in avoidant attachment, which is the opposite, the sense of self and the need for autonomy wins in a sense, right? It gets prioritized and the relationship is what goes to the wayside. So the avoidant um, people in, with avoidance styles or in an avoidant pattern with a particular relationship tend to feel safer with space and with being able to maintain their own autonomy sense of control. That's more important than maintaining the relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's um, secure attachment. So there's mostly a sense of safety and I can be my own person and I can be connected. And there's a lot of mutuality and you know mutual respect there. And then there's also disorganized. So that is kind of a combination of anxious and avoidant of like the, what you received from your caregiver was so disorganized and unpredictable that you have a disorganized response. It's, you never know what to predict. You don't know if they're going to show up um, in a codependent place or if they're going to show up and be withdrawn. You don't know if they're going to be really, really angry when they come in or if they're going to be like chill and like safe to actually interact with for a little bit. It's really interesting. As you were going through those, I I was actually recognizing a pattern in my own head. So I grew up codependent. Uh So kind of on one side of the spectrum. And then as I've begun to heal both with God and my family, I went to the opposite place of like, I need space. I need to figure out who I am. Like we like, I will connect with you, but on the bare minimum. And even like with God, I was like, yo, if you're really there, like we can't talk for a bit because I got to figure me out. And right. so, yeah, so it's it's interesting that I went from like this codependent, anxious attachment style over to this very withdrawn avoidant right. style. And, and that fine- doesn't mean you're rebellion, you're rebellious, right? It means that there's enough security that you can go to having more autonomy to heal. Yeah. Well, and I think it's interesting too, because I, I mean, I would have loved to just go from codependency to this like secure attachment place. 
but because the pattern was so ingrained, I feel like I almost needed to separate myself out and like figure out what was Terry. Like what, like, who am I? What do I want? What do I value? Where are my boundaries? Like, how do I communicate that? And then, you know, there are people in my life that I feel safe kind of, you know, that I am in secure attachment with, but there's still some of these that I'm in withdrawn attachment with right now because we're healing codependency and I don't always necessarily trust myself. Like we're starting to kind of practice Mm -hmm. some like more secure attachment, but I don't always trust myself not to get, especially when things are like really tense to not like get sucked into the codependency again. Right. And I think unless the other person is willing to work on their relationship and attachment wounds and interaction with you, sometimes you can't actually move to secure, right? You can feel a little secure in yourself and then choose extra boundaries and extra space, right? Yeah. It doesn't have to be that anything other than secure is bad. I think I, I also had to move to the avoidant and that was really healing and really helpful for me. Mm-hmm. interesting that I think I've done it with different layers even. So like avoidant with um, the relationships and the intimacy while I was healing my internal world and my emotional self, but I wasn't really thinking about doctrines or anything like that. And then now once I have more secure attachment to myself emotionally, I've been kind of examining the doctrines and being like, okay, I I have an avoidant relationship with the Bible with mm-hmm. like, I need space from that. I'm not really interested. I just know these doctrines aren't working for me. Like maybe at some point I will be able to examine other um, theories and ways of interpreting the Bible that might make it less loaded for me. Right. But I'm not in that place right now. That part still feels avoided. Yeah. That makes so much sense to me because there is a lot that I find really beautiful about spirituality and the idea of God, but I'm not there yet. Like I'm still in this kind of avoidant place of not yet. I still want to know like what's healthy for me and what's not, because that whole idea of codependency with God was so much a part of my upbringing and who I am um, and how I related with spirituality that I almost need like a clean break for a while to just figure out what I would be willing to allow in my life. Right. Yeah. And that's why like my, the framework that I've developed around this, my trust yourself again, framework is only the movement to trusting yourself because that is the core for healing. And then you can have spaces where you can be like, okay, maybe I want to explore some connection with the divine. Maybe I want to explore like some Mm -hmm. connection with some spiritual scriptures or whatever, right? Like whatever they are. But in my case, and I've noticed in others, it takes getting to that place of I am emotionally like connected and secure in my attachment to myself. Yeah. Um, And I, I practice uh, internal family systems therapy, which has been so incredibly healing and is such a great framework. And so as I've done my own therapy and worked with my own parts of me that were hurt and protective parts that um, were aligned with evangelicalism and that I've like given different jobs in my system now, um, once I kind of hit ground level and had gotten rid of all those like burdens and unhealthy messages I found that I had space to try to connect with the divine again. And that was happening kind of naturally, but it was mm-hmm. more with Mother Earth. Me being a part of the ecosystem is where I feel safe and I'm connecting right now. Yeah. Yeah. 
I love that the idea that, you know, as we heal this attachment with ourselves, because I think we have attachment wounds inside of ourselves too, coming from codependency, we almost withdrew from ourselves. Exactly. We abandoned ourselves, right. To maintain this relationship because we needed that Mm -hmm. to survive in some ways, right. As little kids. Yeah. You You need this person. You need this community you're in to not reject you. Yeah. So you abandon yourself in order to be codependent and to kind of, you know, overlap with other people. So you're healing this like avoidant attachment that you have with yourself and you get to a secure place with yourself, which allows you to then feel a little bit more safe venturing outside of that. When do other people actually help as well? Because I feel like other people, therapists were really helpful for me. My husband, who is a therapist, which is probably why he was really helpful for me created these kind of safe spaces where I was allowed to practice being autonomous. I was allowed to practice talking about what I wanted and needed, what I liked and didn't like without the fear of being abandoned or judged or, um, you know, just berated. So how do you feel like other people, like where can you find those other people if you've never known anyone who's not avoidant or codependent? Um, I mean, I think therapy is a really good place to start one you know that you have a safe person an attachment if you're finding someone that's not coming in as the expert right you need someone that is going to trust you and your own internal guidance which most therapists should but definitely ifs therapist will um hold that space for you um where you know that you don't have to give anything to be okay you don't Mm -hmm. have to worry about that person is always going to be a stable non-judgmental like support to you and so that be really helpful both in that relationship healing um and and be able to examine and go through you know what's happening for you personally there are also such great resources now for groups that are happening so like i have a group i know lots of other people from the beyond the wind summit that have different groups that are healing spaces that might be more accessible for people than one-on-one therapy in my experience it's been kind of hard to find just like general wellness spaces to Mm -hmm. heal because there are people that have really unhealthy attachment styles or narcissistic, like high control stuff that you have to look out for. Um, so to make sure you find a safe place where those things aren't like pinging in you. Yeah. I'm having this kind of, um, desire to talk really quickly about how, how can people find like, what are the green flags for a safe and healthy space? I think sometimes those are not immediately apparent to those of us who are coming like straight out of codependency. Right. So I, I think the attachment framework is helpful for this because you ha- you can think about, do I have space to be me without any expectations? I can be me and be accepted no matter what. Mm-hmm. And this person is going to be present with me and a level that feels comfortable with my boundaries and connected to me in that space. They're not going to push. They're not going to withdraw. There's not this emotional back and forth that I'm trying to navigate. Um, there is not these nonverbal messages of deflection or dismissing or disapproval. Those are, I have a whole list I'm working on right now, like power and control tactics, right? So like if you feel anything that feels like a power and control tactic or that you immediately feel some cognitive dissonance or like shock and can I, what's going on here? Can I trust myself? Like have an emotional flashback, that kind of thing. Like that is not going to be a safe space for you, yeah. right? Or anytime that you feel you're like, oh, I need to um, hide part of myself, or this part of me is not going to be acceptable here. I think coming out of these 
codependent religious settings that can come up in us as part of just what we've had to do to survive trauma. And it's checking out then, is this a safe place? Could I share that if I wanted to? Could I be there if I wanted to, right? Um, Is this from my past trauma that I'm bringing to this situation? Or is this actually a real read on what's happening in the situation, right? Yeah. And even whether or not it is a real read, if that is happening for you a lot, then it's not going to be a great environment for you. No, I'm glad that you brought that up. Like if, if this is coming up for you, even if it isn't a real read on the group, then maybe this isn't the space for you to be, to be exploring these things and healing because you obviously don't feel safe yet. Right. And I think separating intent from impact too is really helpful, right? So just disregard the need to figure out somebody's intent, right? Just pay attention to what the impact is on you. And Mm -hmm. if the impact is, I feel safe. I feel appreciated. I feel like there's not any pressure on me. I don't feel like even the goodness coming from the other person or positivity is like overwhelming, like love bombing. Like I feel okay here. Then that's your most accurate read is like what's happening in your body. Cause it's going to alert you to safety. Mm. I love that idea because I think so many of us are taught to read intent over impact in codependent and enmeshed relationships to assume that the other person is being loving or that they care for us or that they have our best interests at heart, even when something they say or do is really hurtful or overbearing or controlling. Yeah. So if their intent is good, then I'm supposed to accommodate no matter what the emotional impact is on me. Yeah. Let's talk about that with regard to God. Yeah. Because I think that that is a huge dynamic that goes into what I was taught about God that like, yeah, it might seem controlling or yeah, that might seem really harsh or yeah, that might seem, you know, overbearing, but it's not actually his intent is to save us from ourselves or he's trying to protect you from, you know, from harm or from being, you know, vulnerable to Satan's attack. So he has to be a little harsh in order to protect you from, you know, further damage. So let's talk about that for a minute. That makes me think of that verse in Hebrews. I don't remember where it is, but about God disciplines the children he loves, right? It's been used for like so much like abuse and power and control and like family dynamics as well as in church. Yeah, I think the situation where God is set up to be this all-knowing, benevolent leader and master and Lord, like I don't like those terms anymore. Um, It just, it feels like very much like a slave owner to me, right? So like we are treated as slaves and it's whether we get benevolent treatment or whether we get harsh treatment, Mm -hmm. right? But either way, he's our master and we have to be grateful. We have to be subservient and we're always belittled. And like, we always have to think of ourselves as groveling and unworthy and helpless and so grateful for this wonderful benevolent God that's taking care of us, right? And we're saying all these things about God's mercy and God's grace while we're also saying that is only available to you if you toe the line. If you're grateful all the time, if you're good, because if you're not, that means you're sinning. It's your fault, (laughs) right? Um, Like the grace is only available when you ask God into your heart, right? Which is a whole nother thing we can talk about, like emptying yourself and God having to fill you and like not allowed to have itself. Yeah. I mean, it's so destructive and it really, it is an abusive dynamic and relationship, you know, with this conception of God, right? Mm -hmm. Like we're going to leave like who God is and what the divine or universe is like alone. People can figure that out themselves, but like the way that we were taught and the way that it is 
enforced in this high control, high demand environment is that we are just going to tell you about all the goodness of God, but then, which is kind of like love bombing, but then we, what we feel the impact of it is there's so much pressure and so much anxiety and so much like fear of rejection and shaming and blaming. And even like things that are supposed to be helpful are like intense intervention, right. Or like this subtle shaming like around oh. it. Um, so yeah, it's really, really unhealthy and breeds all sorts of dynamics of abuse in the church and then making you more vulnerable to have other abusive relationships in your life, right? Because you're taught to just be subservient and like that is your <laughs> your way to glory. Yeah. I think that's especially true as women. Yes. I find that that those of us who are socialized as women that we um we're especially taught to like that our our role in a healthy relationship or a loving relationship was to be subservient and to emotionally caretake because that is kind of what we're doing with God is we're emotionally caretaking him because our sin makes him angry or sad. So we're trying our hardest to be on our very best behavior and to follow the commandments and to, you know, obey his will so that he doesn't get angry or sad. And so that he's happy with us so that he'll bless us. And so that he'll accept us. I find that this sort of response is is really prevalent in women but i find for men at least some of my clients the what they've reported is that yeah they felt subservient to authority but in their own relationships they felt like they were supposed to embody who god is that they were supposed to emulate that and do that with their wives and their children and that it created these unhealthy dynamics where they never intended to be abusive, but that's what they were taught to emulate. And so that's what they did. And so there's that grief and remorse of, I was doing something abusive without intending to be abusive. Right. That they were taught, this is your God-given place in the world is to be this authority. Yeah. Yeah. Different kind of pressure around that. Right. And then kind of making them into like little offenders. Yeah. As far as power and control, at least. Right. Right. So yeah, that was really eye-opening for me working with men and realizing like, oh, some of you emulated this, not because it felt good, but this is who you thought you were supposed to be. You were just trying to be like God. You were trying to, you're trying to do what Jesus would do. Oh. Yeah. So I also have a checklist for covert narcissism in religious settings that will be coming out soon too. And I'm going to create a course around that because I think it's just so much a part of this kind of way of experiencing the power and control issues in the church. Absolutely. Well, and I feel like religion in particular breeds a kind of vulnerable narcissism that many of us see as holiness or um, communal narcissism and vulnerable narcissism, I think thrive within high demand religion at least for those who are seen as like subservient, right? Like the ones who are supporting and serving, whether it's, you know, male or female. Mm -hmm. And then in our leadership, we really celebrate grandiose narcissism in some ways. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's interesting how like maybe we start off as vulnerable narcissists or we're kind of trained to like engage in this vulnerable or communal narcissism, but as at least in Mormonism, because you rise up the ranks. Mm -hmm. Um, as you're more faithful, you're given more responsibility and, you know, you rise up the ranks and as you rise up the ranks, more of that grandiosity kind of comes out because you start viewing yourself as, oh, God really trusts me. 
he thinks I'm doing a great job. I must be special. Like some of those things start to come out. Mm -hmm. I'm so excited that you're making that resource because I think many of us could use that. Yeah, absolutely. So from here, what I really want to talk about is what are our attachment needs? How do we start moving into kind of more secure attachments? Um, How do we recognize that? Because I think for many of us, it's like learning a foreign language. We've never, we've never seen it modeled for us. It's not been the culture we come from. We don't know where to start. I remember even reading about secure attachment in books and it not really computing or making sense. Like I just was not aware that a culture like that existed and I didn't even know where to start. So let's kind of start talking about how can we start moving towards healthy attachment and what, what are our needs with attachment? Right. Absolutely. So kind of like I mentioned before, one part of this is in any relationships you have both with others and with yourself and with the divine and with your community, um, having both space for connection and for being yourself. Those are both really basic human needs and the safest, most secure relationships are going to be able to have both. And when they don't being able to recognize that and say, these are my emotional needs. And these are the boundaries then that I need around that. I really like Lindsay Gibson um, has a book about healing from emotionally immature parents. And I love that book. And at the end, she has an emotional bill of rights. And that is such a great place, I think, to start with like, this is how I deserve to be treated. This is how I deserve to, um, the space I deserve to have as a person, especially when um, you've been in codependent or anxious relationships and there's been a lot of pressure around you, you can kind of give you that space to be like, no, I, I can hold my boundaries there, right? I can demand this or I can leave if it doesn't happen. So that is one piece of it. Then I think there's like the internal piece of healing for yourself and forming secure attachment with yourself. So that I, I think internal family systems is a wonderful, wonderful way to do that. So you could start by reading a book like you're the one you've been waiting for or no bad parts that might be a good um, entrance to that. And then start to talk to yourself with compassion and curiosity and approach yourself like a friend, right? Can I befriend myself? Can I have some curiosity over what I'm experiencing and take care of all these different parts of me inside? Can I be my own attachment figure, right? So we have a core self that can be that attachment figure for all these little parts of us that have survived trauma, that have gone through things that are holding all of our like desires and like personality things. And we get to treat them like an internal family, which is where you get the name internal family systems. And there is a part of us that is only comprised of goodness. And that is the core of who we are. That's filled with compassion and clarity and kindness and connectedness and creativity and choices. And it, that part of you can be like a loving parent in your system or a loving teacher or however you want that leader to kind of imagine that. Um, So that is a great framework, I think, for being able to securely attach to yourself, that you have that compassion and that space and this resource and ally within yourself all the time. Yeah. And I love that idea that it's already in you because I think sometimes we're like, it's out there someplace and I need to go find it. And I need to like somehow like capture it and put it in me. And it's already in there. It might be like 
covered up right now with like a lot of protective mechanisms, right? but it's in there. And I think we recognize that part in other people out in the world. I think there was a part of me that was like, I wish I could be a person like that. Like, I wish I could be a friend like that. I could be kind like that. I wish. And I, I think we recognize those things in other people because they're already in us. Right. Right. And then we can treat ourselves that way instead of harshly, like I have to make myself obey, you know, this unrelenting God, right. To mm-hmm. be okay. Of like, I'm already okay. Can I love myself and be from myself, accept myself and come home to myself? Yeah. Well, and even that part that's like trying to control us and trying to like shame us, it it is a protective part. It's a part that's there trying to protect us from further harm and judgment and, um, you know, and the loss of attachment is really what it's trying to protect us from. And so even just recognizing that those parts of us that sometimes are really cruel to ourselves or that um, can be really afraid. And, you know, like we have the scaredy cat parts that are like, no, don't do that. Like that's going to Uh that all of those parts like there's a place for acceptance and love for them too because they're trying to protect right they want the best for us they just don't know any other way to do it right and they're often modeling what was modeled for us yeah yeah um i was just going to share another resource real quick if anyone's experiencing a lot of those internal critical voices um and judgmental and like inner controller kind of things another amazing book is called freedom from your inner critics and it's also parts work but pieces apart all these different critical controlling voices inside um, to befriend them and loosen that up i love that that was that was something that was revolutionary for me is realizing i wasn't trying to silence my inner critics i wasn't trying to like exile them which i think is what i was trying to do for so many years yeah Mm -hmm. you're not allowed here get out of here i gave them like mean names Um, I called my inner critic Becky for a long time and I was just like, get out of here, Becky. Like, you're not welcome, Mm -hmm. but those are part of us too. And they deserve love and compassion and kindness too. And I found that as I'm able to be kinder to the inner critics, the inner critics relax and allow me to be kinder to the other parts of myself. It's, it's almost like, so it's almost like whenever you're adopting a child, or like mm-hmm. fostering a child that's been through a lot of trauma, they will show you their most combative, yeah. um, rebellious, right. like harsh parts. Because if you can love those parts, right, then you can love their their squishy inner core. Right. And I think we do that with ourselves too. If we can learn to love our inner critic, if we can learn to like have compassion for the part of us that can be really shaming, that sometimes even sounds like our parents, right. that we can... Like, it's like, they'll, they'll relax and be like, okay, if you can love me, then you right. can. And this is part of the shift, right? From the o- obedience, authoritarian way that the systems that we've been in, right? And so we've internalized in the way we treat ourselves that we're shifting to like, really what Jesus represented more of like this love and compassion to ourselves. Mm-hmm. And that's what leads to transformation, right? It's like that we get to treat ourselves differently. Yeah. I think that there's so much power in learning to be compassionate with ourselves, right. no matter what comes up, mm-hmm. even if it's like super judgmental and we're like, oh, that's like embarrassing mm-hmm. and not who I want to be. Like right. getting curious and compassionate with that part of ourselves. Right. And being like, right. And being curious. Then where did I learn that? Where did that yeah. come from? Right. 
what is the purpose? What are you trying to do? Like what, why did whatever happened over here trigger that response inside of me? And I think the more we can open ourselves up to that, the more, the more safe we feel with ourselves. And I think the more safe we feel with ourselves, the less we feel like we need others to meet those needs of safety inside of us through the codependent patterns that we created or the avoidant patterns that we adopted in order to protect ourselves from continuing harm. Yeah. So how do we do this with God? Because that feels like with people, I feel like that feels very concrete. People are like they're flesh and blood. They're right here. How do we start? Like if we want to, because don't feel like you have to. If we want to reconnect with God, I think some of it is kind of like we're addressing and taking off the internal burdens and messages and beliefs that aren't true and that we don't have to hold anymore, we can do that with our conception of God, right? So I've been thinking about, I have to get rid of a hierarchical conception of God. I need to get rid of a patriarchal conception of God. I'm even for me, I need to get rid of a parental figure of God, right? Because that is laced with so much that Mm -hmm. then I can explore who God is, who am I relating to? What is this like outside of these, um, oppressive systems and structures and beliefs that have been put on our conception of God. Yeah. You're opening up the box and allowing anything to be possible. So you're cutting the cords from patriarchy and even from maybe emotionally immature or codependent or narcissistic or borderline type family systems. And even from the idea that he's authoritarian in any way, shape or form. And you're cutting those cords and saying, if it's not that, then what else could it be? And just getting curious about what resonates. Did I hear that right? Yeah, absolutely. I love that idea. And I think you're right. That work would have to come from a place inside of us that can hear our inner knowing. Yeah. And I think if you want to do that from a place of still being connected to Christianity, um, Native by Caitlin Curtis is really good. Um, Anything by Rachel Held Evans and The Universal Christ by Richard Rohr, because he has a really interesting um, take on both having a personal and a universal God through what he calls the Christ and that that's the idea of God. Um, And I think that's a really helpful way to pull those things together Mm -hmm. um, in a way that can feel both personal and universal and part of this ecosystem that we're in, like we're a part of this world and how are we a part of the divine and how do we know the divine here? Yeah. And that there's safety to explore that, right? Without these demands of, I have to believe this to be safe, right? I have to believe this to be safe after I die, to be safe right now, right? Can I just explore that and already know that I have enough secure attachment with myself and that whatever God I'm going to relate to, I want it to be a God of compassion, right? I want it to be that. And so where do I find that? Yeah. Well, and I love the autonomy to even make that statement. Like, I think as we're working to more securely attach with ourselves and for me, like the way I was working with my kids, like the way I viewed my kids really did change what kind of God I was willing to associate with. Like 
Did I want an abusive God? Like, could I, could I even see that as God? If I could accept me and if I could accept my kids for who they are, why wouldn't I expect at least that as a minimum for the God that I'm associating with? Why wouldn't I expect that an all powerful, all knowing, all loving God would at least extend empathy and compassion Mm -hmm. to me as his child or as his creation, you know, however you view that, I would expect that kind of compassion and understanding and kindness and curiosity because Mm -hmm. that's what a healthy person does. Right. I, I've also really liked, um, the science and non-duality, um, organization. They have a lot of trainings and now they have a podcast and that's like out of the Christian sphere, but could be Christian adjacent, um, where, they're looking through the lens of science at spirituality and that what does this look like to not have to be dualistic beings, right? And like my head and my body are separate Um, and to be in this world and be doing ontological shifts from authoritarian structures to more ecosystem egalitarian ways of being in the world, anti-racist, anti-oppressive. Yeah. Well, and I think it's so interesting, like all of this is coinciding and I, I don't think that it is a coincidence that, you know, the movement around racism is happening right now. The movement around misogyny and patriarchy is happening right now. The movement around colonialism is happening right now. And um, just and Christian supremacy, like both sides of this, like the the loud voices that are talking about, like, it's time to change this, as well as the voices that are like, no, we want our tradition we like there's a fear side of no what happens when we become more egalitarian do i still get to practice my religion do i still get to have do i still have freedom to worship the way i want like both sides i think are really evidence along with all of the deconstruction that is happening and the moving away from religiosity not necessarily spirituality but religiosity one that support these white supremacy authoritarian structures yes that's no. a great way to put that yeah. That there is like all of this is happening at once because there is a shift I feel like happening where we're trying to find that new normal where we have power with instead of power over. And so we're reimagining God. We're reimagining what, you know, religious structures look like. We're reimagining what, like, what should governmental structures look like? What should business structures look like? What should education look like? And I find it really exciting. It's unsettling. It's uncertain. But I find this time really exciting. Yes. And that gives me a lot of hope. Like I try to stay connected with that grassroots movements, right? That is coming from so many different places and has the same groundswell, right? Of common values that we're moving towards. And that gives me a lot of hope. Yeah. It gives me a lot of hope too. I mean, don't get me wrong. There are some voices out there that scare the living daylights out of me sometimes. Right. Yeah. Because they're extremists on both sides. Yeah. But I feel like all of that is like a natural part of change happening. You're going to have voices along the whole spectrum. And um, I, I find that I find that really hopeful that that's evidence of change, that we're, we're not comfortable staying in homeostasis. Right. Yeah, I'm, I'm a part of a board of a new nonprofit, too, called the Order of St. Hildegard that right now just has a like a chaplain, chaplaincy cohort, um, but it's for anti-oppressive religious space like can we envision a new way of being and helping train leaders to be in any sort of spiritual space 
in a way that is really healthy and supportive. And so, I mean, there's people in this space that are pagan, that are witches, that are Christian, Christian adjacent, like there's so many, and it's amazing to see. And like the, one of the first teachings was about boundaries and consent and like, how do we have a system that is framed around that instead of high control? Yes. Support and transparency and that kind of thing. And there will be like spaces for general membership um, coming soon. That's kind of the next phase, which I'm excited about to be more space of just exploring this together. It will be another helpful space to be. Well, and I feel like that's so needed because regardless of which spiritual space you're in, whether it's a new age spiritual space where you're dancing naked around a fire every full moon and like saging the space or whether you're in an organized, you know, recognized religion. So many of us like maybe deconstruct doctrine, but we don't deconstruct the, the high demand part of it. The, Mm -hmm. the authoritarian part, the part that has power over. And I've watched many people, many well-intentioned people deconstruct high demand religion, but not deconstruct the idea of authoritarianism or codependency or enmeshment and end up creating new age spiritual cults or like coaching cults, like not even spiritual, but like coaching cults where there is an ideology that must be adhered to in order to be part of the group. And it, and other people are called out. And I, I love that there's spaces being developed to like, Mm because all of these people intended to help. Right. And accidentally created the same system they left just with a different label or a different like cover on it. And I love that we're starting to like dig into the root of these, these wounds that we have with authority, these wounds that we have with the idea of, you know, being acceptable and and our attachment and having secure attachment. So I love that. I I'm so excited about that movement. Yeah, me too. Well, as we wrap up, where can people find you? What would you like, like, what would be something that you feel like would be so helpful for people who maybe are in the space where they're rediscovering themselves, working towards healthy attachment with themselves, or maybe have really felt like they've started to anchor into that and they're ready to explore healthy attachment with others, whether that's other people or with like a deity or a some sort of power? What would you love to see people do? Um, tell me a little bit more about, do you want like things about like my, my world or like in general, like this is my hope and inspiration for the, like, this is your hope and inspiration. Like what, you know, what would you love to see happen? Oh, I would love to see everyone learn how to release the burdens and messages and pain and trauma that they've received and lived with and be able to learn how to trust themselves again and come home to themselves. And then from that secure place, be able to like, just expand this goodness into the world. And for us to see that in systems, as well as in individual people, right, that we were, Mm -hmm. that we are in this place of collectivism and inclusivism and like, respecting and being a part of nature and the natural order as well as how we treat each other right Mm -hmm. in small communities and government and larger systems and like the ways that we see the world and see each other yeah oh that's beautiful what an amazing place we would live in if if that were happening right if Mm -hmm. if we were doing that work so i know you have resources that people can access on your website and on your blog 
where would you direct people first? Like if they had to choose one resource that you have available, where would you have them go if they're working on attachment wounds with religion and with God? Um, the attachment style to God quiz is the best place to start because that'll help you kind of piece through and think about what were some of the things that the pressures that you felt or the needs that you felt around attachments. And then that also gets you into my email list when you click on that. But I also have a trust yourself, um, learn to trust yourself again, free masterclass. And then I have the, the bigger group program as well. If that's, that's helpful. Yeah, no, I know that that's going to be helpful for so many people. So Please go and check out Catherine at cqcounseling.com. That's right. cqcounseling.com and go and look for, sign up for her email list, first of all, because you're going to get lots of goodies in your email box, but then look for the attachment style to God quiz. And that's going to help you kind of give you those first guiding principles of like where you are, like where are you at right now? And maybe some ideas about where you want to go in the future. And, um, if you're feeling like, you know, I really do need to work with my attachment with myself, I have abandoned myself for a while, really look into that learn to trust yourself um, course that she has and all of the other wonderful tools and information that she has on her blog and on her website. I have loved getting to connect with Catherine. I'm sure you're going to see her on the podcast again. She has a lot of cutting edge things that she's working on a really curious mind, which you guys know I am really excited about. And I love that she has that open space where we can kind of like explore questions together. So thank you, Catherine, for coming on the podcast today. Thank you, Terry. It was such a pleasure and a privilege. Oh, I had so much fun. And thank you all for joining us today and spending your time with us and learning about this topic with us. I can't wait to hear your questions on the Live Wednesday call. And if you're not part of the Live Wednesday call, don't hesitate to send me a direct message or go to the Facebook group, Emancipate Yourself. Write your questions in there. We want to hear from you. We want your input. That's how we all grow together. So I will see you next Sunday.